Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that you and your family are doing well today. I want to thank you very much for joining me in my new podcast entitled Didache, which is the Greek word for doctrine and teaching. So uh, this is the third or fourth installment of Didache. We're just kind of getting our feet wet here. And I mentioned in the introductory broadcast that from time to time we will be doing a Q&A program. And I figure we'll probably do at least a couple of these a month. And uh, I said to email me with your questions and please put into the subject line uh, something to the effect of Q&A podcast or something like that to catch my attention. And several of you have done so already. And I thank you very, very much for doing this. And I thought we would uh, begin. We'll do our first Q&A program today. And I hope that you enjoy it. So I have a number of questions. In fact, I have more than I can get to in this particular broadcast, but we will uh, pick up the rest of them later. Uh, please do keep those questions coming. I'll be glad to to help you in any way I can. I know people to, uh, people really enjoy Q and A when I do teaching uh, live in a church. You know, do a seminar or something like that. People really enjoy the Q and A sessions, and I do too. It's it's one of my favorite things to do. So. Uh, we'll just do this in podcast form. Okay. All right. So the first gentleman that emailed me is a man named Christopher, and he actually had several questions. And uh, so I'll just go through a, a couple of these, and then I'll get to get to some others as well from uh, some other individuals. But Christopher asks this. He says, I understand that Christians do not consider the Apocrypha to be inspired like Scripture, but how do we know it's not inspired like the Bible? And then a second kind of follow-up question to that is, he says, is it edifying for a Christian to read the Apocrypha? Okay, so I think if I answer the first one, that will kind of uh, answer the second one. So uh, what is the Apocrypha? So if any of you have been maybe you were raised, reared Catholic, you know what the Apocrypha is. The Apocrypha is a collection of 14 books that are included in the Roman Catholic Bible, but are not included in our Protestant Bibles. Uh, The word Apocrypha literally means hidden away. Uh, Apocrypha means to hide away or hidden away. And it's in its original context, in its original usage, it meant to uh, hide away from ordinary people because these books were supposedly just too sacred uh, for a common folk to read. And it's, it's very interesting that that is the case, given that the Roman Catholics include the Apocrypha in their canon of Scripture, because the entire history of the Roman Catholic Church is one of it doing its absolute dead-level best to keep the word of God out of the hands of everyday people. The the Bible they said is just too sacred. It's just too holy and and you you poor common folk just can't understand it. You you got you're going to have to leave the interpretation of scripture to us priests and 
cardinals and the pope and and we will trust us we'll we'll tell you what it says just trust us so um that's not a good thing that's obviously not a, a good thing and um in fact as a little aside and then i'll get more into the meat of the apocrypha uh several years ago a number of years ago i was preaching in ecuador and to give you an idea of just how um fundamentalist or rabid i guess some roman catholics can still be today uh the the man that i was with has done most of his uh spent most of his life as a missionary in ecuador and he one of the days i was there he took me up in in some mountains uh up to a village he just kind of wanted me to see this village and a market kind of thing that they had up there and as we were coming into it he said, Justin, this is old school Roman Catholicism. And I said, oh, he said, oh, yeah. He said, if you were to get out of the car right now and start preaching the gospel or handing out tracts, he said, they would stone you. They would stone you. And he said, he didn't mean that metaphorically. Literally, they would stone you. And so, um, yeah, the, the history of the Catholic Church is not a good one. And... Uh, they do not like to be questioned. They do not like to have their authority questioned in any way. And what better way to have the authority of the quote-unquote church to be questioned or threatened than for everyday people to have their own copy of God's Word in their hands that they can read and interpret for themselves. So uh, it, it's very <laughs> – the Apocrypha is very appropriately named, shall we say, because they just uh, – in the Roman Catholic Church has dealt – is dealt that way not only with the apocrypha but really all of uh all of the bible they, they have tried to keep it out of the hands of people so anyway i digress so the apocrypha as i said 14 books and these books are first and second esdras e-s-d-r-a-s first and second esdras tobit judith rest of esther wisdom sirach baruch epistle of jeremy Song of the Three Children, Story of Susanna, The Idol, Bell, and the Dragon, Prayer of Manasseh, and First and Second Maccabees. So those are the 14 books of the Apocrypha. Uh, why do we not consider the Apocrypha to be inspired scripture as we do the other 66 books of the Bible? Well, for some very good reasons, and, and there are several of them. Number one... The apocryphal books are never quoted in the New Testament. Never quoted in the New Testament. The disciples, the apostles, no one quoted the apocrypha in the New Testament. Jesus himself never quoted from the apocrypha. And uh, it, it's especially interesting when you look at Jesus' words in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He said, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Notice what he, he didn't say there. He didn't say in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and the Apocrypha. So Jesus himself never quoted from the Apocryphal books. So the fact that Jesus did not, the disciples, the apostles never quoted, nothing in the New Testament even hints at referring to anything in the Apocrypha is quite telling. And uh, especially when you consider that there are hundreds upon hundreds 
of Old Testament quotations and references and allusions uh, in the in the New Testament, so, but never, not a hint of anything from the Apocrypha in the New Testament. So uh, that's that's one reason, and that's a very big one. Uh, another very big reason is that the apocryphal books have historical errors in them. They're just objectively provable historical errors. And believing as we do in an inerrant scripture, then the apocryphal books cannot possibly be inspired if they have provable errors in them. Okay, And also, there are not only historical errors, but there are theological errors in the apocrypha. Things that are just not congruent with the overall biblical theological framework at all. For example, the book of Tobit teaches that almsgiving can, quote, save you from death and the dark abode. So if you give money to the quote-unquote church, then you can basically save yourself from going to hell and the dark abode. I don't know exactly what if there's a distinction between the dark abode of hell, but whatever. Uh, it's a bad place, and so if you just give the church money, hey, you can you can just skip out on that. Well, that is really what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about indulgences. Their doctrine of indulgences that um, you may have heard this phrase: "For every coin into the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs." That's um, a phrase that the uh, Roman Catholic priest named Tetzel used to use and raised uh, boo coodles of money for the Roman Catholic Church. And um, indulgences are a Roman Catholic thing in the Roman Catholic Church to this day. So um, very serious theological errors. The book of Second Maccabees, as another example, teaches that you can make atonement for the dead. I cannot make atonement for the dead. It's appointed for man once to die, then the judgment. And Hebrews 9.27, and once a person dies, that person goes to one of two places, will be there for all of eternity, and there are no second chances. So uh, just distinctly uh, and blatantly unbiblical uh, theological doctrines are found all throughout the Apocrypha. So they cannot be inspired. Another reason that we reject the apocryphal books as authoritative is that uh, the early church fathers did not accept them either. So Jesus didn't, the apostles didn't, uh, neither did the early church fathers. Uh, for example, Athanasius and Origen did not accept the apocryphal books. Uh, Jerome did not, uh, he was an early Catholic priest, and, and he was a Catholic, and he didn't even accept them. So uh, there, there's many, many books, I mean, excuse me, many reasons that we do not accept the apocryphal books. So uh, all of that to say that really is the answer to the second part of his question. Is it edifying for a Christian to read the apocrypha? Uh, I would say no, no, it's not going to provide you any spiritual benefit. And edification, that's, when I think of edification, I think of that as a distinctly uh, biblical and theological term, much more than just encouraging uh, edifying is something that grows us in our in our in our in our spiritual walk and uh, uh, just living a, a life of sanctification before Christ to his glory and so there's nothing edifying about the Apocrypha now could you read it for if you have an academic interest 
or if you just kind of want to know what are in the books uh, of the apocryphal books, sure, you can. If you have that academic interest, you can certainly do that. But it's not going to edify you because um, the only thing that will edify us as believers is Scripture, inspired Scripture. And the apocryphal books ain't. (laughs) All right. Okay. And uh, another question. Does the doctrine of predestination eliminate the idea of free will? That's a a great question, and uh, boy, a question that many, many people have. And in this podcast, at some point, I don't know exactly when I'll do it, I want to do a whole series on the doctrine of election, because that is something that is widely, widely misunderstood by so many people. And um, a lot of people have just a caricatured understanding of it. And so we're going to, we're going to do a pretty deep dive at some point into the doctrine of election. So, uh, does, does it eliminate the idea of free will? Uh, the short answer is no, but we would have to first define even what free will is. And a lot of people think that when we're born, we're just born kind of spiritually and morally neutral, or that would be, generally speaking, the excuse me, the Arminian position. Uh, we have free will. We can either choose Christ or not choose Christ. Uh, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are dead in trespasses and sins. We're not spiritually sick. We're not on uh, in spiritual ICU. We are tag on the toe dead. And so there's nothing that a, a dead man or woman can do for himself or herself. Uh, our, our, our will is in bondage, as Luther said, the bondage of the will. Uh, the sinner, apart from the saving work of the Holy Spirit, is dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, there's nothing that he can do for himself. He must be made alive by the, the work of God and the work of God's Holy Spirit. So um, the sinner is neither willing nor able to come to Christ. He's not willing to do so. He's not able to do so. And, and at this point, you're probably thinking, oh, well, that answers the question. We, we have no free will. And so, yes, it does eliminate the idea of free will. Well, it, it kind of does eliminate the idea of free will. But, 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 it does not eliminate or negate the other corresponding biblical truth of accountability. Sinners are accountable and responsible. Uh, They have a responsibility. They have an accountability to come to Christ, to come to him and seek him for forgiveness of sins. That is their responsibility to do. And at this point, you may be thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What about all of what you just said about the sinner not being able to do that? That's true. He's not. And yet he's responsible to come to Christ. That's right. He is. <laughs> and if your head is swimming, this is what we call an antinomy. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. Antinomy. And the antinomy is two seemingly mutually exclusive truths or teachings rather that are still true two doctrines two theologies that to our 
human reasoning seem to be mutually exclusive, that they cannot possibly exist, coexist, and yet they do. And so this is, this is one of the antinomies that are taught in Scripture. God is sovereign. The doctrine of election is absolutely true. Man is the sinner is neither willing nor able to come to Christ on his own. God must regenerate him. That is true. It is also true that every sinner has a responsibility to come to Christ. And if he doesn't, then he will will pay for his sins and his rejections of Christ for all of eternity in hell. And he's responsible for that. He's accountable for that. Both of these things are true. Now, if that makes your, your head swim, that's okay. It makes my head swim too. Uh, I, none of us can fully wrap our minds around that, but we are obligated by Scripture to believe both of these things as being simultaneously true. Why? Because Scripture teaches that both of these things are simultaneously true. True. Let me give you just a couple examples. There's many we could cite, but uh, there there's several places that you see both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility or accountability of man in the same passage, uh, right next door to each other, uh, in the, uh, literally in the same breath in many occasions. For example, in Acts chapter 2, this is the Apostle Peter's sermon. Beginning in verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now there you have it right there. God's sovereignty. Jesus was crucified because he, he, this was part of God's predetermined plan and his foreknowledge. So this was planned from eternity past. And look at the very next words. Peter says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So, who who killed Jesus? Did God kill Jesus? Yes. Did godless men kill Jesus, put him to death. Yes, they're both true. They're both true. Um, and I don't have this in front of me, it just came to my mind. In the Old Testament, God used Assyria as his rod of judgment against Israel, the nation of Assyria. And God caused, this is Isaiah, I don't have to look up the chapter. Anyway, God caused Assyria to go and to... Um, basically sack Israel as his rod of judgment. And then God turned right around and judged Assyria for doing what he had just made them do. Both of these things are true. Uh, it, Jesus, let's, let's look at a statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 11, in verse, beginning of verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Oh, excuse me, I, I, I dropped down. Let me start at verse 25. So at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, 
And watch this. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. God's sovereignty, right there. Clearly stated. The sovereignty of God, doctrine of election, right there. In the next words out of Jesus' mouth, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Literally, almost in the same breath, right from the mouth of our Savior, Jesus teaches the sovereignty of God, clearly the doctrine of election, in the very next word out of his mouth, come to me. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, come, and I will give you rest. So um, an antinomy, two seemingly mutually exclusive doctrines that yet are still true because the Bible teaches them both. Another example of an antinomy would be um, uh, the inspiration of Scripture. So, for example, who wrote the book of Romans? Did God write the book of Romans? Yes. Did the Apostle Paul write the book of Romans? Yes. They're both true. Well, how could God write Romans and Paul write Romans? Well, because the Scriptures are inspired by God and the Holy Spirit of God moved upon Paul to write those words. Same with Peter, same with John, same with James. And it's interesting, you can you can see the different writing styles even and in, in uh, some of their personalities coming out in these books, and yet they're all still equally and fully inspired by God. So did men write the Bible? Yes. Did God write the Bible? Yes. <laughs> all right. So uh, great question. So yes. Uh, and, and let me just throw this in there real quick. A lot of people say, "Oh, doctrine of election kills evangelism." No, it doesn't. It actually, it actually um, energizes our evangelism. It should. I know it does mine because I, I can, I know when I share the gospel with someone, the response of that person is not on me. I don't have to put the gospel in a clever way. I don't have to worry about being articulate. I don't have to worry about uh, having a winsome personality, though you don't want to be a jerk either. But uh, I, I don't have to worry that it, the, that person's eternal state is, is hanging on me in how clever I am or how well I articulate the gospel. No, I just I give the gospel and, and the Holy Spirit of God will do, will take those words and will do with it what he has eternally decreed to do with it. And uh, it actually energizes our evangelism. The most evangelistic people I know, the guys that are out there open-air preaching on the streets and handing out gospel tracts and doing evangelism, um, almost all of them are Calvinists. They believe in the doctrine of election, almost all of them. And you look through the great evangelist of church history, and almost every single one of them believed in the doctrine of election. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, you know, Spurgeon, uh, all these guys, they're you know, tremendous evangelists, and they absolutely held to the doctrine of election. Okay, all right, uh, let's see. Looking at our time, let's do, let's do one more, one more. Um, well, where did my notes go? Oh, 
The question I have for the Q&A podcast is, do you have or will you have, this is from Cheryl, Cheryl, I'm not sure. Uh, So Cheryl or Cheryl, forgive me if I'm uh, mispronouncing your name. So uh, the question she has, do you have or will you have teachings on the end times last things? Would love to listen to you dive into end time events the Bible speaks about. Uh, thank you so much, sister. Yes, I, I will do some teaching on eschatology and the end times. I think in my inaugural broadcast, um, I talked about just very briefly, gave an overview of my uh, theology, and I very briefly touched on eschatology. I am premillennial in my eschatology, pre-trib, premillennial. That that is where I fall. Uh, eschatology is important. It is not, however, an issue or a doctrine over which we divide. We break fellowship. I have some very, very dear friends, men for whom I have tremendous respect, who uh, differ with me on eschatology. They're amillennial. I even know a couple of postmillennials. Not many, but a, a, a few. But uh, anyway, I am premillennial, uh, pre-trib in my eschatology, and, and we'll, we'll, uh, we will at some point later delve into those doctrines okay dear ones uh there see oh there was one more question i wanted to answer how should we treat someone who says they've repented but don't bear the fruit of repentance okay that's an important question someone who says that he has repented but is not bearing the fruit of repentance you cannot give that person false assurance of his salvation uh, if he is now, it has to be clear cut. You know, sometimes repentance can be a, a bit subjective. You're talking about like repenting from, you know, having a, you know, a hot temper or something like that. But uh, but it, say something clear cut. Someone is in habitual unrepentant sexual immorality. They say they've repented, but you know they haven't. That uh, you you can't uh, let that slide. You've got to confront that person. You cannot give that person a false a false assurance of where he is spiritually. The most loving thing to do for someone is to confront them in their sin. Uh, the most hateful thing we can do for someone is to know that this person is in sin, and I'm talking about a professing believer here, and not confront that person. Uh, it, that's the most hateful thing to do is to to know that there's a need for repentance and not confront that person. So, uh, yeah, you, you, you can't have fellowship with someone. If you know someone that ha- is, professes to be a believer and they've got some ho- serious, habitual, unrepentant sin in their life, you can't pretend like everything's okay. It's not. You can't have fellowship with that person. Uh, you can't pray with that person because you don't want to give them a false sense false assurance of their salvation and where they stand with Christ. A genuine Christian can be in serious sin for a season, but when confronted with it, a genuine Christian will bend the knee and and, and will repent. That's what we see in, in Matthew 18, the steps there of, of church discipline. Okay. All right. There's much more I could say about that, but uh, our time has drawn nigh. All right, dear ones, thank you so very much for listening. I hope that this has been helpful for you, uh, talking about the Apocrypha and a little bit about uh, election and repentance and uh, touching on something later that we will come back to revisit eschatology. All right. Thank you so much, dear ones. Until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. 
Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.